You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. We do believe it, but we need you to help our unbelief, Lord. So, Holy Spirit, would you please help this word right now to um, take root in our hearts. Help us to receive what we need to receive. I pray that you administer to each person in a special and unique way. Um, I pray that, Jesus, if there's anybody in here today or listening online who does not have a personal relationship with you, specifically I pray for them, uh, that you would uh, open their eyes to see you, Jesus, as you really are, as our salvation and our satisfaction. It's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago, it was a Friday morning, my daughter woke up and she was complaining about not feeling well, said her legs hurt, her head hurt. Uh, she didn't have any energy and she said, Dad, I, don't, I can't go to school. And I, she, I said, well, you're going to have to go to school. She already missed three and a half days that week. Um, she was now on antibiotics. We didn't really know what was going on with her, but we ran several tests and they all came back negative. And so um, I told her, I was like, you're just going to have to put your big girl pants on and we're going to have to go to school, whether you like it or not. And so she gets in the truck with me and my, my youngest son and we're riding to school and on the way to school. She just keeps saying, dad, I just don't feel good. Like I really don't feel good. And finally, uh, something in me just kind of snapped. And, and out of this kind of anger and frustration, I looked at her and I asked her a question and I didn't ask her. I didn't say, sweetheart, what do you need from your dad right now? I didn't say like, hey, how can I help you? Or how can I pray for you? But out of anger and frustration, I looked at her and asked her this question. I said, why are you so weak? It was a question that I knew was an attack on her identity as soon as I said it. It was a question that I had used to shame her heart so that I could shut her mouth. And it worked. She stopped whining. She stopped complaining. We drove to school the rest of the way, and she listened to me lecture about all of these stats about how the most successful people in the world are people of grit, as if I'm talking to her like she's a football player or, you know, like uh, some sort of soldier, and she's an 11-year-old girl. And so we get to the, to the school, and she gets out of the truck, and as I drive away, I'm just like immediately like filled with shame myself, like I knew what I did was wrong. I knew that it was. And to make matters worse, at 315, uh, my kids uh, walk to my wife's classroom. She teaches at Tech, but Nora was not there. And all of a sudden, my wife gets a call from the, the nurse at Green County Tech, and she says, hey, uh, Nora's in my office. She has 102 fever, and her legs hurt really bad, so she can't walk across campus. And so my wife takes her to the doctor, and come to find out, they were there for like three or four hours, ended up running several tests, and x-ray, she had developed pneumonia. And so she wasn't faking it. 
after all. She wasn't whining. She truly was really sick. And I met with my daughter. She's very gracious and, and forgiving. And I had to apologize like I do often with my kids. And she was very quick to forgive me and, and, and we're great. We've, we've moved on past it. But here's the thing. The reason I share that and kind of tell on myself is when I look back on how I handled that situation, it's really clear to me that Nora was not the only one suffering from a sickness that morning. Uh, she had a physical problem with her lungs, but I had a spiritual problem in my heart. And what I have learned, what I've noticed in myself and others, is when we're confronted with our sinfulness, when we're confronted with just how messed up and broken we really are, there are one of three things that we tend to do. One option is we can distract ourselves. We can busy ourselves. We can just say, you know what, I'm going to forget about this. I'm going to, you know, get on social media and I'm just going to kind of scan things. Or if uh, you're like uh, me at times, I can blame others. Well, I would have never lost my cool if she wouldn't have whined. Or I would have never been so upset if he wouldn't have or she wouldn't have, right? It's just a way of distracting from what's going on in here. Or we can condemn ourselves. We can beat ourselves up and we can relive the moment over and over. And I can say, what kind of terrible parent am I? Like, who do I think I am? And, And just continue to shame myself. Or there's a third option, and the third option is rather than distract ourselves or condemn ourselves, we can, and this is the best one, I think, examine ourselves. We can choose to slow down long enough to dive deep below the surface of our own life with God and others, and we can do the work to discover and deal with the root issue that is causing the unwanted behavior in our lives that often leads to us hurting ourselves and hurting others. You know, you've heard me share this before, but I think about the Titanic, right? The Titanic was considered the unsinkable ship. And yet in its first voyage, it hits this iceberg, and it kills nearly 1,500 people. And if you look at this uh, picture, I think it illustrates this beautifully. When you think about the Titanic, right, like what what sunk this ship was not the 10% they could see. It was the 90% that they could not see that caused destruction. It was the part below the surface that did so much damage. And as you look at this picture, what you need to understand is the same is true when it comes to our lives. There is this part of us, this surface level part that is the small part of who we are, the outward part that other people see. And because that's the people or the part of us that people see and the part of us that people judge, we often spend a lot of time and energy trying to manage that part of us in order to make ourselves look acceptable in the eyes of others. The problem is that when we do this, When we focus just on the 10%, when we focus just on the outside, we end up neglecting what's on the inside. We focus so much on the tip of the iceberg, we fail to discover and deal with the majority that is actually below the surface. And here's what this looks like for some of you. Maybe you project a perfect picture image of you and your family on social media. And so when we get on social media, what we see is a family that is always smiling A family that is always winning, always at peace, when secretly maybe your marriage is falling apart. Or your kids are becoming to resent you, beginning to resent you because they know you're vicariously living through them and you're putting this incredible amount of pressure on them to to, to look perfect or perform perfectly or close to that. Or maybe for others in here, you're always very kind and you smile and you're gentle with people to their face, but then you judge them behind their back, or you gossip them, or you slander them, or you look down on them. You assume the worst about people rather than assuming the best, even though Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that's what love is. Love does not assume the worst, it assumes the best about others. Rather than trying to put yourself in people's shoes in order to understand where they come from or or why they believe what they believe, you look down on them because it helps you feel better about the brokenness in your own life. 
Or maybe you show up to a gathering like this on a Sunday morning or to your missional community and, and people ask you, how are you doing? And you typically respond by saying what? I'm fine. I'm good. When you know you're not. You're an anxious mess. You're depressed. You're battling some kind of secret addiction, whether it be to work or alcohol or drugs or pornography, the approval of other people. And if that's where you are this morning, listen, there's no condemnation from me, but here's what I want you to understand. If you refuse to get beneath the surface of your life, if you continue to blame everyone and everything for why you are so unhappy, you're going to end up living a shallow and unfilling life that in one way or another will lead you down a path to destruction. And so with that in mind, because this is a temptation not just for you, but for me, for all of us, Jesus wants to invite us today not to distraction, not to condemnation, but to examination, to do a deep dive into our hearts so that we can bring healing where we need it the most. And so with that, look with me, John chapter 4, verse 3, John chapter 4, verse 3, and we'll put this on the screen for you, I believe. Here we go, John chapter 4, verse 3. So he, speaking of Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he, speaking of Jesus, had to go through Samaria. Now the problem with that line is Jesus had to go through Samaria is that he actually did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, in this day, if you were a Jew, if Jesus was a Jew, you would not go through Samaria. There was actually a common route for Jews to take from Judea to Galilee where they would go all the way around Samaria because they despised the Samaritans. And when I say they despised the Samaritans, what I mean is they would literally pray to God that God would not forgive the Samaritans of their sins. And so Jews didn't go through Samaria, but here it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why? Well, it's not for geographical reasons, but it's for spiritual reasons. It is because Jesus is being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to this place that is considered to be the dirtiest and most disgusting region known to existence. And why would he do this? Verse 5. It says, so Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And so notice here that, that John does not sweep the humanity of Jesus under the rug. Jesus, please hear me guys, is 100% God, but he's also 100% man, which means Jesus, just like you and I, would get sick. Jesus, just like you and I, had weaknesses. Here we see that on full display, like he's physically tired, and so he sits down at the well. And in verse 7, it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? He's thirsty. He's not pretending to be thirsty. He's actually really thirsty. And in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews who not associate with Samaritans? So notice how surprised this woman is that this Jewish man is talking to her. And she's surprised. She's shocked for a few reasons. One, she's surprised because she's a woman. In this culture, women were considered second class. Some of them considered to be dogs. Like, her testimony was not even included in the court of law. Like, if you saw something, you were a witness to a crime, I wouldn't listen to you if you are a woman. Your word meant nothing to me. And so she's shocked. Here's a man talking to her in public. Not only that, she's shocked because not only is she a woman, she's a Samaritan woman. She's considered to be a half-breed. And not only is she a Samaritan woman, she's a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. She is a woman that is being shunned by those around her because of her sexual sin. I once heard a, uh, read a book, I remember even where this came from years ago, and someone says, man, you don't realize just how scandalous this moment was. For Jesus to talk to this woman in public, they said in, in our culture today, it would be like a Baptist minister going into a gay bar. 
Like, like, like you just look at this, you're like, like, what are you doing there, Jesus? Like, why are you walking into this situation? This woman is absolutely, she's blown away herself because this is probably the very first time in her life, honestly, that a man has ever treated her with dignity. This is the first time maybe ever in her life that some man has ever asked her for anything other than some sort of sexual favor. Jesus asked her, can you give me a drink? And she says, well, how can you ask me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so Jesus looks at this woman and he says, I recognize that there is a thirst that you have. And it's not just a physical thirst. Like it is clearly a spiritual thirst. And I realize, I know your story. You have been looking unsuccessfully to the things of the world to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. And what Jesus says, I want you to know, is I have come to Samaria, a place that no other Jew would go. And I have come here so that right here and right now, I can give you this free gift of living water so that in me, you can experience both the salvation and the satisfaction that you have been longing for. To which this lady responds in verse 15, says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. And so if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, great, awesome, like seal the deal, Jesus, have her to close her eyes and bow her head, lead her through the prayer of salvation, and then cue the music. This is great. But that's not what happens at all because Jesus actually decides to make this really awkward. In verse 16, this is upon the woman asking Jesus for living water that he just offered her, by the way. Jesus responds by saying, okay, but first, go and get your husband. Now, on a surface level, to me, this seems like kind of a jerk move, because as we're about to see, Jesus knows she don't have a husband. Jesus says, go get your husband. And the lady says in verse 17, well, you see, uh, I don't actually have a husband. Jesus says, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. And the man that you're with right now is not your husband. So, yeah, what you said is quite right. Can you imagine you hearing me have a conversation with a woman like this at Walmart? Yeah. You would think I blew it, right? I mean, you walk into Walmart and you're like, oh, there's Jared sharing the gospel. Somebody, isn't that great? We're so proud of our pastor. Like, and the woman's in tears and she's like, give me this gift that you're talking about. And I'm like, well, first go get your husband. Ah, I actually know it's not your husband. I just know that you're actually sleeping with a guy who's not your husband. You had five failed marriages before that, didn't you? What's happening here? Why would Jesus bring up this woman's past and present issues like this? Why talk about something that he knows would probably cause some embarrassment? Something that would bring up this pain and hurt in her life. What is happening here? Well, in short, Jesus is getting below the surface of this woman's life. In an incredible act of courage and compassion, he is taking her into the deepest and darkest places of her story that she would rather hide. And listen to me very carefully. Jesus does this not because he wants to harm her, but because he wants to heal her. He wants to touch the parts of her heart that have caused her the most pain and suffering. And notice how this woman responds in verse 19. She says, sir, I can see that you're a prophet. 
our ancestors worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So you see what's happening? Jesus is trying to get to her heart. She goes to her head. What she's trying to do is stiff arm Jesus. She's trying to keep him above the surface. She's trying to deflect. Like, like she probably doesn't really trust men, including Jesus at this point, because of trauma she's experienced in her own life. And so she tries to distract Jesus and get him back up into her head by bringing up this old age debate about where the Jews and the Samaritans were to worship. And if we can be honest, are we not tempted to do the same thing? To use our Bible studies and our spiritual language and our theology to keep these conversations up in our head rather than down in our hearts. Because of our own fear of what we might find or what others might find, we try to stay on the surface. We master self-protection. We say, no, 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 I'm not going to talk about these issues. Like, Let's just kind of keep it right up here. This is what's happening with this woman. But notice, rather than Jesus giving up on her because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he continues to pursue her. And in verse 21, here's what we read. He says, woman, that's actually an endearing term in the first century. Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. This is a complete side note, but I just want to say this. Our church has people all over the spectrum, people from all kinds of different backgrounds. If we're going to worship the way God wants us to worship, we worship in spirit and in truth. Both matter. There are some of you in here that are like all spirit, no truth. You're like every Sunday should be like, like just we go crazy, we run around, like it's passionate, we're crying, we're on our face. Like, 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 man, we should just be like pouring ourselves out for God. It should be exciting. It should be just an experience. I'm like, look, I'm all about that. But if you have spirit without the truth, like you will live your life just trying to swing from event to event to event, and you will let your feelings and your experience be the thing that dictates your relationship with God. There will be no real intimacy behind the scenes in the boring, mundane stuff of life, which is pretty much 99.9% of how normal life works. So it's very important you have spirit and truth. Now, if you have all truth, some people are like, I'm just here for the teaching. I'm not here for singing. I'm not here for worship. Like I'm here to, to sit under the word of God. Like, truth matters, but if you have truth and you don't have spirit, like, you're going to be dry, you're going to be dull, you yourself will not experience intimacy with Christ. So you need both spirit and you need truth. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. He said, look, man, like, like, let's not make this about where you worship and how you worship. Like, I'm looking for true worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. And then the woman says, verse 25, I know that the Messiah who is called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then look at this, verse 26, Jesus declared, I am the Christ. I am the one speaking to you. I am he. And as the story goes on, this woman, she has her eyes open. She sees Jesus for who he really is. And when you see Jesus for who he really is, you're radically transformed from the inside out. Church history tells us that this woman goes from jumping to man, to man, to man, to becoming one of the greatest evangelists that we know in church history. She actually eventually moved to North Africa, where before being martyred by Nero for her faith, to be used by God to bring about an incredible revival in one of the most marginalized areas in that region. So it's an incredible story, and there's a lot we can pull from it, but for our purposes today, here's just what I want to say. The main thing I want you to see is this, and I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus can bring complete and total healing to your darkest sins and your deepest wounds. 
No matter how big your sins or no matter how bad your wounds, Jesus wants to heal you of all of those things. And because that is true, if we at the Crossing Church are going to increasingly look like the church Jesus wants us to be, we need to increasingly be a safe space for wounded sinners. A space where people can bring their biggest and best sins. Where you can come with both your trauma and your transgressions and you can work through them in a safe space with others in a way that brings true and lasting transformation. Guys, the reality is, look around this room and you know what you're going to find? A bunch of wounded sinners. Everybody in this room, including me, let's be honest about something. We have all been sinned against and we've all sinned against others. People have sinned against us and we have regularly sinned against others. And therefore, we are wounded sinners who right here today have not arrived. We still stand in need of the healing grace of Jesus. And though you might not be able to have an honest conversation with Jesus in flesh form, like we see with this woman in John 4, you can begin to have honest conversations with people in this church, which Paul says is the body of Christ. And what that means is that like this woman, you can begin to dive below the surface of your own life and you can walk through some of your own issues in a safe space that allows you to experience the love and the mercy and the grace of God in a real and tangible way that will transform you from the inside out. And the safe space in our church that this occurs is in the context of what we call a DNA. And a DNA is just simply a group of three to four men or three to four women who are committed to these three things that you see on the screen. To discover, to nurture, and apply. And here's what I mean by that. If you're in a DNA, you're committing to discover. Through your story and through feeling check-ins, which I'll talk about here in a little bit, of going from your head down into your heart. It's a place where you're also committed to nurture one another. To through, through empathetic listening and encouragement and prayer. And then finally, it's to apply what we believe Jesus is teaching us in those meetings in the moment. And, and here's what this looks like on a practical level. Kind of a, a typical DNA meeting will look something like this. You find a group of three to four men or three to four women and you agree upon a location to meet at. And I would encourage you to uh, agree to a location where you can meet weekly with somebody. And you're going to show up, and what I encourage you to do, and what we encourage you to do as pastors, is to start with this feeling check-in. In a feeling check-in, you can see there's a list of feelings right there on the list for you. We'll provide for these for you in a, in a DNA guide I'll talk about in a minute. But these help you, again, move from your head to your heart. Now, let me explain this for just a moment. This is going to be an oversimplified version for the sake of time. But I think I have a picture of the human brain on there. Can we go to this? Okay, there it is. This is just science for you, okay, right here. This is like objective evidence. Um, when you were born, you were born with, you see in there, three parts of your brain. You have this one part, they call it the reptile or the lizard brain, and that is literally your fight or flight. It's fully developed at birth. It's just the part of you, think about like a lizard that walks into a room that sees you. It's going to be like, are you going to eat me? Are you going to kill me? Like, and it's going to either run away or whatever. Like, that part of our brain is pretty much fully developed at birth. Then you also have what's called the limbic brain, the limbic system. That is where your emotions and your feelings are held. That is like 99% developed at birth. So you can, before you can even talk about what's going on, you can feel pretty much all of the emotions that you feel even right now. Then outside of that is what's called the neocortex. And listen, this does not come online, is not fully developed until you're about 25 for a woman or 20, uh, 27 for a man. Men are a little bit slower developing than women, okay? And 
Here's what typically happens. When the neocortex is fully developed, we know this, we tend to bypass our feelings. We tend to bypass the limbic system when we stay up here in our head rather than actually dropping down into a deeper place of who we are, or I would say it is kind of the heart of who we are, the part that Jesus seems to be most concerned about. And so whenever we do feeling check-ins, it takes us a time to, again, drop kind of below this cognitive, just all up in our head, down into our heart in the deepest places of who we are that Jesus wants to bring healing to. So we start, we start with a feeling check-in. Secondly, what we do, if we go back to that other slide, when you're in a DNA, you begin to talk about your conversations with God in the past week. I would encourage you in your DNA to find a, a Bible reading plan that you can do together every day throughout the week. It is so important that you dive into the scriptures. And the scriptures are there, listen guys, not for information. It's there for relationship. It is the way that God wants to communicate with you. We do not worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. And so dive into the scriptures and use like an app. There's an app out there, Lectio 365 is a great one that I use with my DNA. There's a picture of it right there. But there's hundreds of free Bible apps that are out there, or Bible reading plans. Read that together. And then here's what I want you to think about. I want you to come to your DNAs and begin to have honest conversations with one another about what your conversation with God looked like this past week through scripture and prayer. What have you been hearing from God and what have you been saying to God? Third, as you've got done sharing your feelings and, your, and, and talking about your conversation with God, the response is for you to listen and then to respond to one another, to listen empathetically. And when someone gets done sharing, what I would just say is, thank you for sharing. Is there anything that you need from me? It's a great question. When's the last time somebody asked you that after you shared? Hey, is there anything you need from me? That's one of the ways that we nurture one another. It's what it means to be family. Thank you for sharing. Anything you need from me? And a lot of times, you know what people will say? I just needed someone to listen. Or, you know, actually, yes, I need you to pray for me. Or, or, yeah, would you give me some advice? Help me kind of understand. Rather than assuming we know what people need, ask them, like, what do you need from me? Fourth, and this is a big one, confess your sins and temptations. Confess your sins and temptations. I think one of the biggest, um, I, I get why, the, why we, when we branched off of the Catholic Church, I get why we don't have a, a priest that we go and confess to anymore, but we still need confession. And the Bible says, you know who the priests are in this room? Anybody know? Who are the priests in this room? The church. You are a royal priesthood, which means you don't have to come to me to confess your sins and temptations, but you need to go to somebody. And James talks about this. In James 5, 16, it says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You need healing anywhere in your life? Can't come apart from confession. So find time to confess specific sins and temptations. And when I say specific, what I love about, uh, when I say specific, here's what I mean. If you're struggling with lust, we're not saying like, hey, I just want to confess I struggle with lust. Specifically, how did you struggle with lust this week? Tell me what happened. Like, that's what we're talking about. And then I would just say this. Before you end your DNA meeting, spend a few moments in listening prayer. Where you just say, okay, God, like, is there anything you want to say to me? In light of what we've already been talking about here. Anything you want to say through the scriptures or say to my brothers uh, or my sisters. And then seek to apply that knowledge, whatever God tells you to do. Information does not equal transformation. The application of information equals transformation. Does that make sense? My, my son yesterday, he, he woke up and he wanted to eat cereal like he always does. And I, and I said to him, I said, Moses, I said, man, why don't you eat some bacon and eggs first? 
And he says, oh, Dad, I want to eat this cereal. And I said, well, son, if you eat bacon and eggs, you get muscles like your dad. You know, and, uh, and I flexed for him. I told him to feel a muscle. And, and he looked and he thought. And he says, Dad, I do want muscles, but this is really yummy. And so he ended up eating the cereal instead. And I started thinking, isn't that so true of us? Man, I know this is good for me and I should apply this information, but this is really yummy. This feels really good. This is really safe. This is really comfortable. So I'm going to just keep doing that thing. And when that happens, like, we don't change. And so before you end your DNA meeting, spend time. Just, God, what is it you want me to apply from this? And I know for some of you, you hear that, and you're like, that sounds great. Like, what's the next step? I'm in. And what I would say is this. If this is something that you're interested in, and I hope that you are, I would encourage you to grab a DNA guide. And um, let's go to the screen where you see the DNA graphic. Um, you can go right now to crossingparable.com forward slash DNA. We have a brand new DNA guide, hot off the press. We spent a lot of time on it. Everything I just talked about, like really fast, you got maybe 10% of it. You'll forget the rest of it. It's all on the DNA guide. We're going to also print these out this week. This is what it looks like. Um, and you can grab one of these. We'll have them next week. We'd encourage you to get that. Secondly, what I would encourage you to do is start a DNA. Like we used to be like a church that I felt like was, was pretty good in this area. At one point, we had a lot of people in DNAs. I think that over time, that's kind of gone to the wayside. We had Rusty here for a while who really kept us on people's forefront. And Adam was here. He kept us on people's forefront. And, and, and so, you know, as those guys have moved on, this is something that we've just not really had a lot of time to really put in front of our church. And I apologize for that because honestly, I think this is one of the most important things that we can all do together. And so grab the DNA guide, go there, right there, you know, crossingperigo.com. You can begin to read that and then find people to start a DNA with if you're not in one. And the best place to start that honestly is in the context of a missional community. And so I would encourage you, if you're in an MC, grab some brothers, grab some sisters. If you're not in a missional community, but you're like, I need a safe space for a wounded sinner like me, you can go again to crossingparagol.com forward slash DNA. And there is a form on there that you can click on and you can just, you know, vocalize or you can put down on um, in the form, I am interested in being a DNA. And if you say that you're interested in one, we will have a staff member personally reach out to you and try to help you get connected with others where you feel like it's a safe space to work through these things. For others in here, I know that maybe you hear all of that and you're like, I'm not ready for this at all. Um, that sounds risky. That sounds scary. Um, I'm too busy. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why you're like, I'm not interested in this. I've tried that before and I got hurt. I got burned. And I just want to say this, like if you are desperate for change, if you are desperate for healing, just know this, oftentimes transformation requires us to do things we don't feel like doing. And that's in all of life. And I think what that means for our church is we have to be a people who are willing to take the risk of being vulnerable, of taking off our mask and being honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And just to illustrate the importance of this, I want to show you a quick video. This is from a man in our church. This is about a four-minute video. And I'll show this to you while the video is playing. I'm about the band to go ahead and come up. And um, let's watch this together. Uh, in my 30s, um I started having problems, troubles with telling people no. Um, so I would overcommit myself. Um, and in turn, that would bring on sin in my life. Sin that I didn't think I could um, share with people. I didn't want people to think negative of me. I mean, I'm, everybody calls me wolf. I'm wolf. Like, I'm supposed to be there for everyone. Um, um, fast forward to that, um, started having problems in my marriage, um, 
and with all the the weight that I felt from not um, for overcommitting myself and the problems in my marriage, um, I was in a wrong place at the right time, and um, I was offered drugs. But it ended up spiraling into an addiction. Um, I become addicted to methamphetamine. Um, um, my life just started spiraling downhill. I had people coming, um, trying to talk to me, um, but they didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to be there for me because I wasn't telling them my true sin. Um, I was trying to hide it because my thought was, is like, how could someone still love me, you know, still say that I'm good, that I'm wolf, knowing that um, I, w- I had this problem. So um, that spiraled into um, deeper addiction um, until one day the FBI came in on me and turned my world upside down. Um, Jared asked me to... Um, come to our Tuesday morning class with me in and share my story. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. But I was, I was, I was sitting there and I kept seeing all the men come in. Like anxiety come over me. The, the enemy was telling me, oh, this guy's going to think you're, you are worthless. Like he's not going to accept you. But as I started sharing and as I continued to share and like I started feeling free from that, and once I got done sharing the love that I felt from all them men, the comments that they, you know, they told me, like they love me no matter what I've done. Um, so like that's, that's so good and so freeing. And I promise you that you have that waiting for you as well. God never left my side and he never did, but he has given us each other given us each other to talk to, to sit face to face and love each other through our sins, through our deepest, darkest things. And I'm not sitting here saying anyone is going to um, have an outcome like I did. It was a choice I made. But I am sitting here and pleading that if you keep letting sin fester inside you, and not sharing your sin and help and letting brothers and sisters help you through it, it will come out somewhere in your life. But God is there. He'll never leave your side and he has given us each other. So if I could sit here and give anybody any kind of advice, like it would be share your sin with someone. We're here for you. I'm here for you. So many people in this church are here for you. And there's nothing too dark that you cannot be forgiven for and be loved. No matter how big or how small you think your sin is, how insignificant or how bad, all sin grows in dark. It all grows in the dark. And the call today is to just to come out of hiding, to stop letting that grow. We all have issues. We all have struggles. We need a safe space for wounded sinners. Jesus says, I did not come for those who think they are healthy, but those who know they are sick and need a physician. The bad news, you will never have your life altogether. The good news is you don't have to. 
The good news is you can just admit, hey, I, I, I am imperfect, that I'm still sick, that I still need the grace of God just as much today as I did yesterday and the day before that and the day before that. And then it's just a step out of hiding. It's to be honest with God and others about that. And so what I want to encourage you to do is this. I want to encourage you to close your eyes for just a moment. I think what the enemy wants to do and how he could be working right now, even in your own life, is to get you to think about the sins of other people more than about your own sin. To look down on other people who sin differently than you do. It's one of the ways I think the devil keeps us from diving deep into our own hearts. And so here's what I want to encourage you to do. I just want to ask you if you can just for one moment be honest about what's going on below the surface of your life this week or even this morning. Is there any place in your own heart that you don't want to go, but you know is an issue? Is there anything that the enemy, anywhere the enemy is trying to condemn you? Is there anything maybe you've not told your spouse? You've not shared with the brothers or sisters in Christ? Maybe you've been 99% honest, but you've been holding back that 1%. And it's often that 1%, guys, that ends up hurting us and hurting others. And with that in mind, I just want you to hear the words from Jesus where he says, Go and get your husband. Go get that thing that you're most embarrassed of. Go get that thing you're most afraid of sharing. Go get that thing that you've been hiding. And the invitation today is to take it to Jesus. The only one in this room who's ever lived a perfect, sinless life that we could never live. Who died a death on the cross we deserve to die and rose from the conquering sin, death, and hell. The truth is, our sin does have consequences. Sin is not forgiving, but Jesus is forgiving. And I want to encourage you today, just whatever it looks like for you before you leave, to take that to Christ. Maybe to take it to another brother or sister in the faith, the body of Christ. To share that with them and experience the deep and lasting healing, the salvation and satisfaction that you've been longing for. With that, as you continue to just stay in a posture of prayer, I'm going to invite our communion team to go ahead and come forward. We're going to transition to a time of communion. And if you are here today and you are a Christian, in just a moment we're going to invite you to partake of communion to remember the gospel in a real and tangible way. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, here's what I want to encourage you to do right now where you are. If you've never truly surrendered your own life to Christ, if maybe you've been relying on your own good works or a prayer you prayed in the past, you've been staying in your head, maybe you think all of the right things about God. You actually are very impressive with how much Bible you know, but you don't have a relationship with the Jesus of the Bible. I want to invite you to surrender your life to him today. Maybe for some of you, you've been looking for living water in all of the wrong places. You've been trying to find fulfillment in what Jeremiah calls broken cisterns, things that do not satisfy the deepest places of your heart. And if that is you, I want to encourage you right now just to take a moment and just to pray, to surrender that to Jesus, to admit, Jesus, I am a sinner. I've been relying on my own good works, or I've been relying on something or someone other than you to give me the salvation and satisfaction that I need. And today, I just want to, to surrender that over to you, and I want to ask that you will fill me with your living water.